We're continuing a series entitled 40 Days. This is the fourth message in the series. And we're looking at the 40 days from the resurrection of Jesus to His ascension in heaven. Acts 1-3 says in those 40 days that Jesus presented what He said were convincing truths of His resurrection and substantiation of the gospel claim. And we're looking at different conversations that Jesus had with persons and individuals during that 40 days in which it verified the resurrection. And that's what we're focusing in on. And today we're going to look at an account. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 24. You can join us in your Bible or the Westover app. Now I'll be sharing part one of the message today, part two this Wednesday. And we're going to look at the story of the road to Emmaus. There's an account and a conversation that Jesus has after the resurrection with two men that I think speak to us. And as we look at this weekend's message and what we're speaking on today, I want to tell you, every one of us, there are defining moments that define our life. For the 11 disciples, there was a defining moment for them, and it is the resurrection. But for every one of us, there are defining moments that define our life. Let me put it this way. There are capital M moments. Now, there are many lowercase m moments, but there are these capital M moments, these defining moments that become foundational. They change us. They, they, they repurpose us, if you please. They, they send us in a new direction. We settle some issues at these moments, and defining moments, they either make us or break us. When Mel- Nelson Mandela went to prison, it made him. He became the first African-American president of South Africa. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he talked about one of his defining moments. And that's when Rosa Parks refused to take the back seat in the bus. And he said there was something that in him that awakened. And, of course, he led the civil rights movement here in America. But his defining moment was Rosa Parks. Defining moments. You know, success can be a defining moment. It can make you, or I've watched in some situations where success breaks somebody. You see, defining moments, when they come, they'll either come as a challenge or a crisis. A challenge or a crisis. Some of us are missing our defining moment because it's wrapped in a crisis. And you're saying, if God is for me, then why am I going through this? If God is really with me, how come... This is happening. You're looking at a crisis, and I want to suggest that defining moments show up in challenges or crises, and your crises or challenge could be your defining moment. That could be the moment in which you discover God's best. For example, let's look at the 11 disciples. There were 12, I know, but that was Ju- one was Judas Iscariot, Judas Iscariot, and he betrayed the Lord. But there were 11 disciples, and prior to the resurrection, they're intimidated. In fact, we have the account that they're locked away in a room, and they're disillusioned. Everything they believed about Jesus has fallen through. He's crucified, and they're saying, wait, he said he was going to build a kingdom, and Rome is still in charge. They were thinking he was going to overthrow Rome and didn't realize he was wanting to rule the human heart. They're disillusioned, they're discouraged, they're despondent, they're locked away. They're thinking about going back to becoming fishermen and going back to their former trade and giving up and disbanding. That's where they were at. But then all of a sudden something happens and these men will become bold witnesses for Christ. In fact, it's one of the proofs of the resurrection. They were ready to walk away and one experience happened. And the only way you can explain how they went from being being intimidated, vacillating, disillusioned to being so bold in their faith, it has to point to a defining moment, the resurrection of Jesus. Let's just do a roll call of these 11 disciples for a moment. First, there's James the Elder. James the Elder went on to be beheaded in Jerusalem by Herod the Grippa as he was preaching the gospel of Christ. And his very accuser, the moment they were taking James the elder for, for his execution, bowed down, professed faith in Christ, and was martyred alongside of James the elder. There was Andrew. Andrew would be crucified on a cross in the shape of the letter X because of his faith in Christ. And for four days he would hang on that cross preaching and declaring 
the message of Jesus Christ to people and he would die on the fourth day. James the less, he met his death in Jerusalem by being beaten. He had his brains bashed out with a fuller's club and finally he was beheaded. There was Thaddeus. He was slain in Persia where he went to preach the gospel and he was killed with a battle axe. There was Thomas. He went to preach in India. He enraged a mob. They seized him, began to burn him, and then finally thrust him through with four spears. There was Philip. He went to Turkey. He was persecuted, scourged, thrown into prison, and he was crucified for his faith in Christ. Simon Peter. He was, he was executed in Rome because of his faith in Christ. He told the executioners, do not crucify me in the same manner of the, my Lord. I'm not worthy to be crucified in his same manner. So they crucified him on a cross upside down. There was Nathaniel. He went to Armenia to preach the gospel. He was arrested and skinned alive for his faith in Christ. Matthew was slain with a pickaxe while he was taking the Lord's Supper and his body was cut into pieces. There was Simon the Zealot. He was killed in Judea. His body was dismembered and cut into pieces. And the only disciple that was not martyred for his faith in Christ was John the Beloved, but he was banned till the Isle of Patmos lived to age 95 and preached the gospel all of his life. And always was a bold witness for Christ. What was it that took these men from being fearful and disillusioned? And then all of a sudden, they're bold in their faith. Their defining moment was the resurrection of Jesus. The only thing you can point to to see their courage came and their life changed was that defining moment of Christ's resurrection. And I want to suggest for every one of us, God has a defining moment. God wants to meet you God wants to encounter us and bring a defining moment that will define our life. I'm going to invite you to go with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 24. This is the account called On the Road to Emmaus. There are two men, they're followers of Jesus. Emmaus is about seven miles from Jerusalem. News came to those in, in the area of Emmaus that Jesus had been crucified. Two men that were followers of Christ and from the text we read that they had met Christ and some at some point had sat around a table and sat around and heard Jesus preach. But Jesus had been crucified, put in a tomb. They're despondent. They're walking along the road. We have the name of one, Cleopas. The other is unnamed. And then all of a sudden when they're walking along the road, the resurrected Christ shows up and he begins to talk with them and that's the setting we come to. So join me in chapter number 24, verse number 13 and following. Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But notice verse number 16. But they were kept from recognizing him. Jesus himself was walking among them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Do you know it's possible to not recognize your defining moment? It's possible God could be working in your life in that challenge, in that crisis right now, and you don't even recognize your defining moment. Have you ever met somebody and they changed so much and you didn't recognize them? Did you ever go back to a family reunion and they used to have hair and they don't have hair anymore? <laughs> Their hair used to be brown and now it's gray. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, you just don't go back to a school reunion. You just don't recognize people anymore because they change. You know what I'm talking about? That, that can happen to us. Uh, Denise and I have pastored here uh, for some 32 years in northwest San Antonio. Everywhere we go, it seems like in northwest San Antonio, we meet people from the church or they have a brother-in-law in the church, or their kids attend the church, or they have family in the church. Everywhere we go, we're in Walmart, we're in H-E-B, we're, we're, we're getting a hamburger, we're, we're in a restaurant. In fact, 
for Denise and I to even have a spat, we have to drive over to uh, New Braunfels to have a spat because everywhere around us, there are church people. I mean, we got to be on our best behavior all the time. We'll be walking somebody, and somebody will point, and we can see their eyes. And Denise and I said, well, they must be a church member. And we've had people walk up to us in the grocery store and say, Pastor, you know what? My son is going through, and I've just said, get over here by the cereal. We're going to pray. And we just made an altar right there. I mean, that's happened. I, I, we, we'll just, we, we, we pastor people out there in the aisleways of grocery store. I remember one time. Uh, I was going to a, a, a place, a biz, place of business, an Alamo Ranch. And when people see us, we just always recognize them. We try to always respond to them. And I could see this lady as I was getting out of my car and closed the door. She was waving at me. Well, I was going to this business, but she was over here. And I, I waved at her. And I was going to go, and I started walking, and she kept waving at me. I said, well, she wants me to go over there. I'm a pastor. I don't want to offend her. So I was going to go to this business. I said, well, I better go over here and talk to her first. So I changed my route, and I walked up there, and she was waving. I was waving at her. I'm I'm coming right now. And I got up there. Well, she was on the inside washing the windows. That's, that's what she was. She wasn't, she wasn't waving at me, but I was waving back at her. You know, I'm just going to, I'm going to pass her the window washers, you know. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm just kind of geared to that. Well, these men were walking along on the road to Emmaus. That's a true story. Well, these men were walking on the road to Emmaus, and they didn't even recognize Jesus. In fact, the Bible says they were kept from recognizing him. And there's some of us today, God's working in your life and you don't even recognize it. God wants to do something in your heart and you can't even see what God is doing. Now there are two theories why these men were kept from recognizing Jesus. That's what verse number 16 says. They were kept from recognizing Jesus. The first theory is that God supernaturally blinded their eyes so they did not understand who Jesus was. That's the majority theory. Most, most scholars believe that God supernaturally blinded their minds to keep them from understanding who Jesus was. I'm going to tell you I disagree with that theory. That's the common theory. You say, well, I believe that. That's all right. That's all right. You can have a different view on this than I have. But I just don't see that's consistent with God's heart. Nowhere in the Bible... Nowhere in God's nature is God trying to keep people from recognizing Jesus. I cannot conceive God. Jesus is trying to say, I don't want people to know who I am. Jesus wants the whole world to know who he is. God wants the whole world to know that he loves them, that he cares. It seems inconsistent with God's nature and heart for God to blind people's minds to who Jesus is. So then... Why was it they were kept from recognizing him? It's found, I believe, in the very next verse. Verse number 17. Let's read this. And it says, and he asked them. Now, this is Jesus speaking. They were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Notice this next phrase. They stood still, their faces downcast. Did you notice that? I believe that answers the question. They stood still, their faces downcast. They were so disillusioned, so discouraged, so despondent, so beat down, Jesus was there and they didn't even recognize him. More than likely, Jesus had some kind of a tunic on, maybe even something to cover his head to keep the sun off, and they didn't recognize his voice. They just didn't recognize his presence. You know, it's possible, it's possible to not even recognize God in your life at times. You can go on the course of things, you can walk down a pathway and not even see God. You can be in church, you can go through the routine and feel like, God, I just, I don't sense you. I don't know where you're at. God, I just don't feel that you're real. I feel like you're not engaged. God, I don't feel like you're active, working in my life right now. That can happen to us. It happened to these men. They couldn't even recognize Jesus because they were so downcast. Let's continue reading. Verse verse number uh, 18. And one of them named Cleophas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened here in these days? Verse number 19. 
Jesus said, what things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, he replied. He is a prophet. He's powerful in word and deed before God and all people. Now, verse number 20 through verse number 24, these guys began to explain to Jesus who Jesus is. Don't you know he was crucified? He, we thought he was the Redeemer. We thought he was going to be the Savior. We thought he was going to do great work. And they arrested him, and he was falsely charged. He was put on the cross. They put him in a tomb. They're explaining to Jesus who Jesus is. Wow. You know what? I've been there. I've been there. Have you ever prayed a prayer to inform God what's going on? God, I don't know if you know it, but the first of the month is coming up. God, I don't know. Do you know what your word says? God, the Bible says, I don't know if you know what the Bible says, but God, the Bible says, and the first of the month is coming. God, you said you were going to take care. I don't know if you know, God, I have three kids. I don't have two. I've got one that is giving me trouble, and I have three kids. Does you not think God knows you have three kids? Do you not think God knows that the first of the month is coming? Do you not think God knows what his word is said? And sometimes I have prayed, and it's like I'm telling God who God is. God, you said you are. God, you declared you are. And I find myself in the same position they're at. Why? You get there when you're downcast. And when you're downcast, you don't see God. You don't feel God. You don't sense God. And sometimes you can't hear God. God in your life and that's exactly what happened to these guys let's go on verse number 25 this is where we're going to build the message from right here okay this is our this is our pivotal point for this message today I'll give part one today and part two Wednesday verse number 25 so Jesus this is Jesus talking so he said to them how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. There's one phrase there I want you to notice. You are slow to believe. A phrase found twice in the New Testament. You are slow to believe. And from that one statement, I'm talking about defining moments, I want to talk to us on how to increase the speed of believing. How do you increase the speed of believing. How can I, how can you, how can we increase the speed of believing? I don't want to be categorized. I am slow to believe. Hmm. There are some things I want to share with you. Number one, I want to put for us to consider is you have to believe the entire Bible. You have to believe the entire Bible. If you want to increase the speed of believing, believe the entire Bible. And it's found in verse number 27 here. I want you to notice this. The Bible says here, verse 27, and then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scripture concerning him. Do you notice the word all twice? All the prophets and all the scripture. When they did not believe, they were downcast and discouraged. And Jesus said, I'm going to diagnose your problem. You are slow to believe. The first thing Jesus began to do, he went to the scriptures and began to explain to them. Now, concerning this, they don't have a New Testament. They only have an Old Testament. If somebody ever tells you the Old Testament is, for us, is not for us today, they are wrong. If anybody tells you the Old Testament's back then, it has nothing to do with us today. Can I tell you, Jesus did not look that way. Jesus went to all the prophets, that's the Old Testament, and all the scripture, that's the Old Testament, and began to explain who he was and began to unpack that to them. My admonishment, if we're going to increase the speed of our believing today, we need to believe the entire Bible. And for just a moment, I want to talk to you about the reliability of the Bible. Many of us have listened to some kind of uh, uh, documentary or you've learned, heard some philosopher say, some professor in college, maybe you have a friend somewhere, they think they know all about the Bible and they're telling you the Bible is unreliable. You can't believe the Bible. The Bible was just a bunch of, of uh, uh, stories that they were reminiscing, kind of nostalgic stories they put together 
together and they kind of created the faith. That's what they're telling you. Can I tell you what the reality is? When you look at ancient documents, the thing that's important about substantiating the validity of ancient documents, and we're talking about the reliability of the Bible, you take the moment in which it was said, the original person saying it, and then how long it's been since that was recorded and copied. Then the next thing, the length of time from the time they said it to when it was copied. Number two, how many copies do you have? Based upon that, they substantiate the veracity of ancient documents. Can I just unpack this for us a little bit? For example, Caesar. Caesar, from the time of Caesar to the time of the copies of what Caesar said is a thousand years. A thousand years from Caesar to when when it was written down in copy form and there are only ten copies. Plato. Many of you have read Plato's works in philosophy courses. From the time of Plato to when they made copies of what he said was 1,200 years and there are only seven copies available. But yet in your philosophy cast, they tell you they're completely reliable. Let's go further. Homer. Homer is the second most substantiated, corroborated document in all of ancient literature. Iliad, Homer's Iliad. From the time Homer spoke it to when copies were made is only 500 years, and there are 643 copies. And they say, Oh, wow, to get as close as 500 years and to have as many as 643 documents, it's absolutely reliable. Can I tell you about the New Testament? Can I tell you about the Gospels? From the time Jesus said it, it was in written form within 25 years, and there are over 24,000 copies of what Jesus said at that particular time. There is no document in all of ancient literature that was written so close to the time in which it was spoken, and we have so many ancient documents to substantiate, corroborate, and to bring the veracity and reliability of the Bible before us. Can I say it? The Bible is reliable. You can count on it. You can live by it. The Bible is true. Moreover, 1455, the Gutenberg Press, the first movable type print, the first book ever printed on the Gutenberg Press was the Gutenberg Bible. I think there's something significant about that. The first book ever printed on a, on a printing press in mass production was the Bible. The Bible is reliable. There's no exceptions. Some of us, some of us, you're, you're looking up your horoscope. You're saying, you know what, I, I want to meet somebody. I, I'm, a, I, I'm, a, I'm a unicorn and I need somebody to popcorn and we need to come together and, and uh, my astrological symbols to be able to find the right. Now, you don't need all of that. Don't live by superstition. Can I tell you, the Bible is true and reliable. It's a guidebook for life and you can rely upon the Bible. Today, today we are taught this is a day of pluralism. What is pluralism? Plural, singular. You know the difference between singular and plural. Plural means more than one. Pluralism means there's more than one truth. Now the Bible tells us this is the truth. This is what Jesus said. We believe in a singular truth. Christians believe in a singular truth. But pluralism says there's more than one truth. And if you say, well, you go by a singular truth, uh, I have different values. Society says, culture says, I have different moral codes. I have different ethics than there. And this is a day of pluralism. And for you to not accept mine and not be open to my values and my ethics and my morals and be so narrow-minded with a singular, this is, this is pluralism today. That means you are intolerant. That means you are prejudicial. That means you are narrow-minded. That's what they're telling us today. Okay, with that in mind, if you're going to accept pluralism, why don't you go to the bank tomorrow, you have a $500 car payment due. 
Walk into the bank, walk up to the counter. The car payment is $500. Lay a $5 bill on the counter and say, I want to make this month's uh, car payment. And they're going to say to you, well, wait a minute. It's $500 and not $5. And just use pluralism. You need to understand. I value a $5 bill as much as you value $500. I know you want five $100 bills, but this is a day of pluralism. I value a $5 bill, and you need to accept my value system, and I will respect your value system, but I value a $5 bill to be more valuable than you. And you need to accept it. And if you don't accept my $5 bill, you are narrow-minded. In fact, you are intolerant. In fact, I'm going to say you are prejudicial. The banker is going to say to you, in my worldview, you need to value walking as much as you need to value driving. We're going to repossess the car. I want the keys right now. And you can just start to value walking. Can I tell you? We don't apply it to any other area pluralism of society. But this world and this culture has imposed it upon morality and ethics. And has blurred the culture of this day. And the Bible tells us follow God's word. There is only one truth for believers today. That's the Bible. Believe the entire Bible. Any of you from VBS, remember your VBS days? Yeah, VBS, Vacation Bible School. I went to Vacation Bible School when I was a kid. Many of you did, and perhaps maybe some of you haven't. But when we went to Vacation Bible School, we would get there. We would do Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. We would do a Pledge of Allegiance to the Christian flag. And then we did a Pledge of Allegiance to the Bible. Yes. Do you know there is a Pledge of Allegiance to the Bible? We need more 21st century Christians to pledge allegiance to the Bible. I can remember in VBS, they would hold up the Bible and the kids would say, I would say, I pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word. I will make it a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I will hide God's word in my heart that I might not sin against God. Then immediately following that, we would sing the song, the B-I-B-L-E. Oh, that's not by Hillsong. You're not going to find it probably out there in the later. It, it is the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. I will stand upon the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. I know it's a little cheesy, but they drilled in our heart that you would look to the Bible, God's Word, as the foundation for everything. And I'm here to admonish us. We need to believe all the Bible. And the Scripture says that men that had had lost their faith, if you would, were downcast. Jesus, the first thing he does is he takes them to the Scripture. You need a foundation of God's Word in your life. Don't Google every philosophy out there. Go to the Bible. And can I say, you need a Bible. I'm, I'm amazed how many people don't have a Bible today. You know, I, when I want a verse, I just look it up. You need a Bible. It's all right to have a downloadable, but you need your own Bible. I know it's going to cost you $6.99, but it's worth it. Get you a downloaded Bible. Have your own Bible. Number two, how to increase the speed of believing. You have to be passionate for God. Passionately desire God. Verse number 29. It says, these two men, I want you to notice this. But they urged him, that him is Jesus. They urged Jesus strongly. They didn't suggest. They didn't kind of hint. That's what I'm saying. They, 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 you have to be passionate about God. They urged Jesus strongly. Stay with us. For it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in and stayed with them. You have to be passionate for God. You want to increase the speed of believing? Be passionate about God. Be passionate about God. I'm talking about that. That the Lord would just own our passion, would own our heart. Just passionate for Him. That we, we, we would have what they had. They, they urged Him strong. They didn't suggest. Well, if you want to, if you'd like to, if it's not too much trouble. They were intent. They hadn't yet discovered who He was. But they were, they were searching be passionate about God. C.S. Lewis said, if Christianity is true, 
It's infinitely important. He said, if it's not true, then ignore it. But he went on to say the one thing it cannot be is mildly important to us. In other words, you can't say, well, I believe it's true. But I'm not going to believe everything about God. No, not this, not that. I don't like commandments. I like blessings and promises. Where are those promises at? <laughs> if it's true, it must be infinitely true. Those who have taken uh, philosophy before, you know the Greek word for passion is pathos. Pathos. Many of our English words we get from Greek words, pathos. It's passion. In the Greek language, anytime you take a word and put the letter A, alpha, in front of it, it's the antithesis of the word, like tie, untie. Anytime you put un in front of a word, it's the antithesis, it's the opposite, tie, untie. In the Greek language, anytime you take a word and you put the letter alpha, A, in front of it, it's the antithesis to it, pathos. You put the A in front of it, that's where we get our word apathy. Apathy. Ah, pathos. The exact opposite. In other words, we can't be, we can't be mildly passionate. We can't be occasionally passionate. I'm here to invite you be passionate about God. Be passionate about God. Today, we have so many ways to vent our passion. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back on the platform, and we're going to have some time of worship. But we have a way of, of giving our passion and venting our passion. We have, we have so many video games and so many ways that we can vent, and sometimes we, we spend all of our energies in a sport or an activity or this or we go bungee jumping. I mean, who's going to bungee jump? I'm not me. Not me. <laughs> not me. Action figures. Action figures. I heard one guy said, we were so poor at home, I wanted an action figure. So my dad brought me an empty box, and he says, this is an action figure of the invisible man. Just play with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God wants to have our passion. Our passion. Some of us, our passion for God is waning. Sometimes some of us here, we're here, life is sucking you dry. Life is just extracting out of you. Life is just taking the life out of you. God wants you to be passionate. God wants to recapture that. Could you say to Jesus today, I strongly urge you to show up in my life. Some of us, we're walking through life. We're just, you're in church today. You're doing all the right stuff. But you're like the men on the road to Emmaus. You can't even see and feel God. Jesus was talking to them, and they couldn't even recognize his voice. You can be there. Sometimes not because you've done something wrong. You just get, you get anesthetized to it. You get busy. You get drained. And some of us, our defining moment, God is there, but we can't see it. Can't even recognize God's defining moments. And I'm here to invite you to rediscover God. You see God's presence? The same thing that brings God's presence maintains God's presence. What is it? Seeking Him. If you seek Him, that's how you find God. It's, it's how... And you, you, you came to Jesus somewhere you knelt and said, Jesus, I seek you, come into my heart. And God honored that. And you became a Christ follower. You had a making new moment. The same thing that brings God's presence sustains God's presence. You seek him. You're thirsty? Are you longing? I sensed this week as I was preparing the message. I just said, God, give me a word. God, give me a word. I, I want a word for this weekend. Just, just give me one word to build this altar moment on. And I wrote on a tablet right there at my study the word empty. Empty. I said, oh, God, you want to come and fill again. You want to fill again, people. Fill again. He wants to fill you again. He wants to fill you again. So I'm going to invite you to lay down your electronic device. 
I'm going to invite you to set your Bible aside right now. The worship team's coming. Balcony and main floor, would you, would you just join me right now and stand together? And we're just going to go into a time of worship. We're going to go into a time of worship. Mm, time of worship, oh God, show up now. I'm going to call your heart and your attention to this moment. And I sense that, fellas, I sense for some of our men, we're facing a headwind. There are men in this auditorium. You intended this year to be different, but you got sucked into obligation and routine and struggle. It hasn't gone the way you've wanted. And you're, you're, you're not where you want to be. And you're, you, you've tried. You've made some right choices, but you somehow got caught back into the, into the rut, if you please. And your heart is yearning and you're saying, I need more. I need more. You went, to the, you went to our men's conference and you said, I want to stand strong, but now I feel like I'm downcast. Guys, if that's you. Families, if that's you. Families, if you feel like you're just pushing a headwind and you just you need, you need to get re- reconnected with God. You want a fresh infilling of His Holy Spirit. If that's you, if that's you, I don't, I don't want you to wait for somebody else. I don't want to be the first one down the altar. If that's you, I'm just going to invite you. Would you come right now and just stand here? We're going to worship together. Just going to worship. Just join me right now. You just come, God. Need some fresh. I need something fresh from the Lord. You just come. Just join me right. I need something fresh. I feel like I'm running on empty. I feel like I need more spiritual bandwidth. I just need something more. You join me right now. Oh God. All across this auditorium, would you join me? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna say from side to side, front to back. This is, we'll say, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. If you're spirit-filled and you want to pray in the spirit, praying in the spirit is always welcome in a spirit-filled church. It's all right to pray in the spirit. You're welcome to do that. Would you just join me? Balcony and main floor. Let's just let's just soak in God's presence right now. Those at the altar, would you just worship? Can I tell you, the glory and the lifter of your head is in the house. The glory and the lifter of your head and your spirit, he's in the house. The one that returns joy, the one that gives you a fresh breath of hope, he's in the house right now. We're going to worship. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Oh, hallelujah. You're welcome here, Holy Spirit. You're welcome in this house, oh God. You're welcome in this house. Would you join me as the worship team ushers us into his presence? He's meeting you. This is your road to a Emmaus moment right now. And Jesus himself is showing up. Oh God. Oh God. third 
Do it. 
happened in first service. In fact, it happened after first service between the two service and the altar right over there. A man I went to Bible school with, he was a few years older than me in Bible school. He's a missionary in Mexico, a great, one of God's great heroes, great apostles of the faith. He calls me from time to time. He said, I want to get my kids connected get them connected with your church. They're just really not in church. So he shows up. He was here just a few weeks ago. And when he comes, he said, since I'm here in town, I want you to come to church. He's busy. He doesn't take a break and he needs a break, but he'll come to church intentionally to kind of set that in his heart. He whispered in my heart just a couple months ago, you got to pray for my boy. He was here and I greeted him and said, come on, let's connect. Never heard anymore. He's busy. And he was in for service. He met me right there. Grabbed me. Cried an ocean of tears on my shoulder. He said, I'm tired of running. I'm tired of running. And I need God in my life. He was on a road like the road to Emmaus. You can be on a road, the corner of nowhere and desperate. But when you say, God, I need you, he shows up. He shows up. God knows how to beat your kids. Some of your kids are not in church today. And your heart's aching from them. God can meet them on the back roads of nowhere and desperation. He can show up. I put that in your heart. Yes. There's a missionary kid that had a defining moment today. I'm going to meet with him this week. God has a defining moment for you. He's not given up and he's not walked out on you. Thank you for being with us in service. I'm going to do part two of this message Wednesday night. 